Welcome to Grace and Glory Audio, featuring Pastor P.G. Matthew. Today, Pastor Matthew continues his series in the Gospel of Matthew, with his sermon entitled, Blessed are the Poor, preached on November 12th, 1995. Now, if you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew 19. If you want to speak on the subject, blessed are the poor or the rich will not make it. And our text is found in three Gospels, Matthew 19, 16 through 30, Mark 10, 17 through 31, and Luke 18, 18 through 30. And if you read all three Gospels, you will be enriched by this story a real story of a rich young ruler coming to Jesus Christ. Now, after blessing the children who had been brought to him, Jesus resumed his journey to Jerusalem that he may die, that he may be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead for our salvation. And as he was journeying with his disciples, there came a young man running after him. He was not only young, but we are told he was very rich. A man of prominence, because Luke tells us that he was a ruler. Possibly a ruler of a synagogue or even a member of the Sanhedrin. He is called Neoniscos, young man by Matthew, and Hippocrates says this about Neoniscos, that such a person is between 22 and 28 years of age. I would say that this young man was a Pharisee. Only Pharisees believed in the resurrection and eternal life. This young man had an interest in possessing life eternal. And we must understand he was a very moral man. He claimed to have kept all the commandments from his bar mitzvah, probably from age 12 or 13, when he took upon himself the responsibility of keeping the commandments of God. He certainly was reverential toward Jesus. He knelt before him and called him didascale, teacher. And he was also very earnest to see him running to meet with Jesus. There are many things about this young man we must appreciate. Unlike the prodigal son, this young man is making money and not wasting it in immoral living. In other words, he was a very successful young man, very responsible young man. He is very much interested in spiritual things. He is not satisfied with his material success. He is not satisfied with his position of prominence. He is not satisfied with his youthfulness. In spite of all, he is miserable and unhappy. 
He is conscious of the fact that he is without eternal life. He is shut out from the kingdom of God, that he is not saved. So he set out to talk to Jesus to find out how he can be also successful in the kingdom of God, how he can possess eternal life. Therefore, he came to Jesus to ask the question. So he asks the first question. And of course, in the Gospel of Luke and Mark, the question appears this way, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But in Matthew, we read, teacher, what good thing I should do to possess eternal life? The full question possibly was, good teacher, what good thing I must do to get eternal life. Now the problem here of course is the adjective good. Gathos. He uses this adjective good with reference to Jesus as well as with reference to the thing he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus sensing the fact that the young man is using this adjective good relatively and superficially directs his attention to the meaning of the word good in its absolute sense. Why do you call me good? We read that way in Luke and Mark. Or why do you ask concerning the good? We read in Matthew. The issue here is, do you understand, young man, that there is only one who is good. God alone is good, and all good flows from him. Jesus was probably correcting this young man's view of the person of Jesus himself. Young man, do you know, in other words, who I am? See, he came running, and, and he knelt, and he addressed him, teacher, in other words, in his judgment, this person is simply a man, another rabbi. Now, when we read the Gospels, we discover there were people who came and called him other names, like Lord, King. Nathaniel said, you are the King of Israel. And we read in John 4 that he is called the Savior of the world. He's called prophet. He's called Messiah, remember, by revelation. St. Peter addressed him as the Messiah. He's called the son of the living God. But this man was not given any revelation in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he simply calls him a teacher. Now, of course, when you read Luke and Mark... Jesus speaks to the young man. And he says, why do you call me good? And so there are liberal theologians like Vincent Taylor and B.H. Streeter. They would say this, that Jesus, by that question, was denying that he was good. Uh, that he was simply a man, etc. 
And he was saying, you see, young man, don't call me good. I'm not good. Only God is good. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, only God is good. And the idea here is, I am the son of God, so I am good. But do you understand what you are saying? Or are you simply using the word good in a public relations sense, in a superficial manner? God alone is absolutely good. So if you want to do good thing to get eternal life, he says, well, what does the book say? You see, good is revealed in the Bible. The law of God, in other words, is good because it is the law of God who is good. And we are told by St. Paul in Romans 7 and verse 12, the law is holy and it is righteous and it is good. So get rid of your superficial and relative notion of goodness and come to grips with the absolute goodness. So obey the commandments if you want to enter life. Now turn with me to the book of Leviticus and the 18th chapter and the 5th verse tells clearly how to enter into eternal life. Keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So the idea here is, all right, every person who will obey my law will have eternal life. So this man wanted to know specifically which commandments he must do. Jesus, of course, in great condescension, cites at least the second table of the law. Those laws governing human relationships. The idea here is that if you perfectly obey these laws of human relationships... You are loving God and you are honoring the first table commandments relating to God. He even cites the commandment, honor your father and mother. Now, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, you find, beginning with verse 25, once doctor of law, that is one who is a theologian came to Jesus and asked the question. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A question similar to the question the rich young ruler is asking Jesus. And so the answer was, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And of course, this doctor of law understood God's law and he puts it in positive terms Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was a correct summary of God's expressed will in the Ten Commandments. So Jesus said, you have answered correctly. You will get an A. Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. He challenges. But the problem, of course, is nobody can do this, and Merit eternal life. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus. 
and who is my neighbor? Of course, that is simply a smokescreen. You see, the issue is the law is the expression of the goodness of God. And if anyone is able to obey them, then that person will live. And let's look at the reply of this rich young ruler. He says, I have kept all these things from my youth up since my bar mitzvah. When I became responsible for keeping the law, I have kept them all. You begin to sense the superficiality of this young man. He certainly spoke this with all sincerity. Let me tell you, people can be very sincere and false at the same time. Look at people who are religious. Various religions in the whole world. And I'm sure they think that they are saved or at least on their way of salvation. They are extremely sincere. But they are false. He really believed he was perfect in keeping all the law of God. But the truth is his law keeping was external conformity to the law according to the twisted interpretations put on the law by men. Turn with me to the 15th chapter. Then you notice the Pharisees. They twisted the commandments, put upon it their interpretation to make it palatable. Let me give you one illustration. Verse 3, Jesus replied, And why do you break commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says, simply says, (laughs) to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You see... His obedience to the Ten Commandments was after the fashion of this twistedness of the Pharisees who always diluted and depreciated the perfect law of God. They, in fact, we are told, nullified the law by their own twisted interpretation. And the classic case, of course, is the Fifth Commandment, which is quoted by Jesus Christ that the young man must honor his father and mother but they understood this way a son was to take care of his infirm parents he was to support to them financially emotionally and every other way but every son can dodge it and avoid it by simply saying to the parents whatever was coming to you I have devoted as korban for God <laughs> you begin to understand how these Pharisees were nullifying God's law by their own twisted interpretation of it. Now, if you want to know the correct interpretation of God's law, you could always go to the Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. There he speaks about anger as murder. He, he is dealing not only with external, but the internal condition of human heart. 
and he speaks about lust as adultery. And when they asked him about the divorce situation, he said, you have heard that you could divorce. And he says, but in the beginning, it was not so. And he speaks against divorce. But this young man belonged to that class called the Pharisees who majored in the minor. They failed to understand the very purpose of God's giving of his law to man. We are told what the purpose was. Let's turn to the book of Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Very clearly we are given this understanding. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one, no one, no one, he says. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. That was the purpose of God's giving us his perfect law. Now if anybody claims to have kept the law, James says in chapter 2 and verse 10, you must keep all the law all the time, perfectly. You must fulfill the whole law perfectly all your life in order to enter into eternal life. But the young man is not saying that he's a sinner. He's saying he's great, he's perfect. In other words, he has no understanding of the law of God. When you begin to look into it and when you begin to keep it, you begin to understand that your sin is being increased. That you begin to cry out in desperation, have mercy upon me, a sinner. But you see, in this rich young man, there is no sense of sin. He claims to be perfect. Yes, the Pharisees depreciated the law by their own reinterpretation. Then they claimed themselves to be perfectly in conformity with the law. In the 18th chapter of Luke, you see a a Pharisee uh, going to the temple together with a publican. And in the 18th chapter and verse 9, we read to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable about the Pharisee who was praying to himself and saying how great he was. This is the religion of the Pharisees. They have no consciousness of sin. And you read about this in uh, in the case of uh, St. Paul in the book of Philippians if, if you want to understand it he says this if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh he's speaking as a Pharisee I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law a Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness faultless Perfect, blameless. This is the corrosive idea that this rich young man believed in. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God. They sought to establish their own righteousness. So they refused to submit to God's righteousness. 
unlike the publican, the publican beat upon his breast and he cried out to God, Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So the perfection, the righteousness of the rich young man, the perfection he claimed was a phony perfection, a phony righteousness. And you see that it was phony because even though he was rich and famous and young, in his heart he was miserable and restless and without peace. Phony self-righteousness cannot make anybody happy. Such people are outside of the kingdom of God, outside of eternal life. They are not saved. They are under the wrath of God. So now he asks another question. In the 20th verse of 19th chapter of Matthew. T-A-T, Hustero. What I still lack? <laughs> you spoke about keeping commandments. I have done that. I have kept it all. Not just one. I have kept it all. But I have no peace. I have no eternal life. I'm not saved. What do I still lack? I am perfect, yet I don't feel perfect. Is there something he's asking? Is there something beyond the law? That I, the rich and the young and the prominent person can do. Can do, you see. See, the young man is a Pharisee. He is operating on the basis of work righteousness, on the basis of his own merit. He does not need any savior. He is not a sinner. Does he ever say that he is a sinner? No. No Pharisee will ever, ever confess that he is a sinner. He is perfect according to himself. He does not need grace. He wants to earn salvation. He pretends to have kept the whole law. And he is sincere in that affirmation. What self-delusion. All religions are based on this delusion of self-righteousness. Self-salvation. God must accept me. Because I am righteous because I have done something good one time or the other. Jesus is God. He is omniscient. He sees the corrupt heart of this young man. He sees his phoniness. He sees his deluded mind. And so he gives him a little medicine. So that his phony heart will be brought out. See, we can pretend how great we are before people. But not in the presence of him whose eyes are like flaming fire. He never trusted a man because he knew what was in man, we are told by John. Little medicine. So look, look at the answer of Jesus in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, that means the guy is not perfect by implication. What is perfection? It is complete conformity to God's law. It is complete conformity to the character of God. This means he was not perfect. And so the medicine is given of a series of imperatives, commands from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. First go. That's a command. Sell all you have. Not one thing, all of it. 
you must sell. And don't give it to your relatives. Give it to whom? To the poor. You see, it's not a problem for me to sell everything I have and give it to my wife and children. But here the medicine is you must give everything to the poor. And then he gives a promise in the middle of these commandments. You will have treasure in heaven. You see, Jesus understands this man is trusting in his wealth. His wealth has become the stumbling block that prevents this person to look beyond his wealth for salvation. And so Jesus understands the only way this person can be brought to a place of trust in Jesus Christ is through getting rid of that which is the stumbling block. And then he says, come. After having done it all, you come. That's imperative. You come. And what? Follow me. Now, let's understand this. Here is a rich man. Not rich and old, you see. That such a person is miserable. You know, he, he cannot enjoy all this thing. He's, he's rich and what? He's young. He has a long period of time to enjoy this and now here comes Jesus says sell it all and what happens when he sells it all and distributes the poor what happens he becomes penniless and what is the panic how am I going to what live how am I going to live you see what Jesus is saying what trust me you see the Philippian jailer called out and And asked this question, what must I do to be saved? And what was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now he is saying that in a roundabout way. You sell everything and you become penniless and homeless. Then the question will come to your mind, how am I going to survive? And the answer is, trust me. Follow me. Follow me. Because you cannot have eternal life... Except in relation to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Let me tell you. He was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. He was perfect. But he was not happy. He was miserable. He was outside the kingdom of God. He was not saved. He did not have eternal life. And Jesus Christ gives him. He loved him we are told. And he gives him this profound counsel. And I give the same counsel to you. Whatever is causing you to stumble. Gouge it out. Cut it out. Sell it off. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. That you be saved. That you trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And I say that to anybody. The truth is. Your youthfulness cannot satisfy you. Your material possessions does not satisfy you. Your prominence, your power, your position cannot satisfy you. In spite of it all, you are miserable and wretched. If you are a thinking person, there are a lot of people who are very happy superficially. The reason is they don't think. They think happiness is not thinking. But the moment you begin to think about yourself, that you are about to die any time, And you must face an eternal God who is holy and righteous. Then you begin to get upset and miserable and wretched and restless and without peace. And then the gospel is glorious. Jesus says, sell it all. Come and follow.
follow me. The implication is I'll give you eternal life. And not only that, you will receive 100-fold houses and lands and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children in terms of your connection with the new community called church that I'm raising up in the whole world. That is the idea. And look at his response. In the 22nd verse, he went away grieving. Lupumenos, he went away grieving. In Mark, we are told his face fell. Crest fallen. Because he was very rich. The medicine really worked. The condition of heart was revealed. All his righteousness was external, superficial. No wonder Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At heart he was a materialist. He was an idol worshiper. At heart he was an atheist. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on his treatment of chapter 6 of Matthew. And he speaks about atheistic materialism. That is, communism was called by the Western world as atheistic materialism. And the implication is there is a materialism that is not atheistic. That is the Western form of materialism. And he corrects that view. All materialism is atheistic. All materialism is atheistic. Let's turn to the book of Luke, chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable to God, and I think he is speaking about materialism. Well, you know, if you have money, you can solve all problems. Everything has a price, isn't it? And the rich man always asks the question, how much is it? A rich man is popular, isn't it? He who has money is popular in the world, but it is atheistic. And it is an abomination in the sight of God. He was a lover of money, in other words. He was not a lover of God, the kingdom of God. He was not a lover of eternal life, even though he speaks superficially about possessing it. He was a lover of things. He was a lover of this world. And he was a slave of money. No man can be a slave of two masters. He will hate one or be devoted to another. It is an absolute impossibility to serve money and God at the same time. To serve this world and God at the same time. John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 2.15 says the love of this world... If you love this world, the love of God is not in you. Love of this world and love of God are mutually exclusive. Money, materialism exercises a totalitarian rule. Also, God exercises a totalitarian rule. Either money dominates your life or what? God dominates your life. 
the rich young ruler loved money more than Jesus. And we see that when the medicine is given, his face fell. Money more than Jesus he loved. He loved money more than the kingdom of God. He loved money more than, the, more than eternal life. He loved money more than salvation. He loved money more than the inner peace that he did not have. He came to the right person, all right, to find eternal life. His story is one of the saddest in the entire Bible. He came to the living bread, but he wasn't hungry. He came to the living waters, but he was not thirsty. He came to the Savior, but he was not a sinner. And so the Bible says he went away from him. He came to him because he was miserable, but he went away from him most miserable. The Bible speaks about the deceitfulness of riches. It is like morphine. It is like an anesthesia. It deceives you. He was a slave to money. He wore his materialism like a python. He loves his python. He feels warm. And and he cuddles it. And he massages it. But the python will soon crush him. And crush his bones. When you open the book of Bible. You find the book of Genesis chapter 4. Where Cain did not sacrifice acceptably. So God did not approve it. And he became angry. His countenance fell. And God came to him. Why don't you do the right thing. And you will be happy. And what did he do? He said. Fooey with you God. I am going to do the wrong thing. And he kills his brother. Oh it is sad that you are given counsel. You are given the gospel. And you walk away from Jesus Christ. From the living bread. From the living waters. You are invited to come into the feast. But you deliberately go away. And in the book of Luke chapter 12, we find uh, the story that there were people, the Pharisees, they thought that life consists with things. And Jesus gave a story of a rich fool whose land produced great crops and he built a great barn. And then what did he say to himself? Oh, soul, eat and drink and be happy for many years. That's the worshiper of materialism. But he's a fool. He didn't understand that night. His life will be called. That he would die. That he should give an account to God. That is the story of this man. Or look at the 16th chapter. Look, there is a rich man. And there's a poor man. And the poor man died and went to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man died. And he went to hell. And he was in torment. And he was conscious. But he was torment. In torment. But then you see other people in the Bible like Elisha. He was plowing. Remember in 1 Kings 19 the chapter. He was plowing. And Elijah came and touched him with his mantle. And all of a sudden he stopped plowing. And he killed the oxen. He made a feast of it and he left following Elijah. That tells us about 
that responds to the gospel. He didn't have any problem selling it all and distributing it. And he left to serve God. Well, look at another man. He almost lost salvation. Only almost. Remember, his name was Naaman. And he was a Syrian. He was a general. He was successful. He was famous. But the gospel was preached to him by a little girl who was taken captive. Finally, he came to Israel and asked the king to heal him. And he said, hey, we cannot do it, man. And uh, Elisha said, hey, wait a minute, bring him over here. And, uh, and he came over to this hut of Elisha. And this man thought being rich and famous, uh, you know, of his day. Here, here he was. And he expected this man of God to come and massage him and do some wonderful things as he was seated on his camel or whatever. Instead, he didn't even come out. He said, go wash yourself in Jordan seven times and you'll be all right. He almost lost his salvation. He was angry, we are told. Are you angry? When the gospel is proclaimed to you because it cuts you down to, the, to your own size, which is a lost, miserable sinner. He didn't want to get off of his animal. He is rich. He had gold and he had silver and he had clothes and he was a general. He was famous. And his servants said, hey, please, please do it. You know, it's a, it's a simple thing. And what did he do? He got off of his animal. He went down to Jordan River, that muddy waters of Jordan. And you have seen waters of Jordan. And he, I'm sure he took off his clothing. He must expose himself to everybody as a person full of what? Leprosy. And he gingerly entered into Jordan. And he dipped himself first time and came up. And maybe he's still angry. But he did it again and again and again. And the seventh time he came up, he was saved. He almost lost it, but he did not. But here is a rich young ruler. He came so close. And yet he goes away crestfallen. Because he's an idol worshiper. In the book of Matthew chapter 13... We are told about the treasure that is hidden in a field. Speaking about the gospel and salvation. And the man sees it and cowers it up and he goes home. And he sells all and buys it. And why is it? Because God gave him revelation. In terms of what this is all about. Or this merchant. Who wanted to buy that pearl of great price and he found it. And you go home and read it. He went home with joy and sold it. Everything. And bought it. What correct decision. Or look at the disciples. They tell Jesus, you see, you are saying that, uh, that it is impossible for rich people to get into heaven. But we left all. What are we going to get? Are we going to get salvation? <laughs> oh, Yes. Matthew and James, you were able to do that because you were given revelation. Look at Mrs. Lot. She almost 
got saved, but she didn't. Became a pillar of salt. Look at Judas. He was with Jesus Christ, heard so many sermons. He himself, I'm sure, preached the gospel, healed the sick, and drove out demons. But he did not experience salvation. He sold the master for 30 pieces of silver. Oh, look at Demas. The Bible says, Demas, abandon me. Having loved this present world, let me tell you, it is so serious. This materialism, this love for this world is such a stumbling block. So, let's look at the lesson. What is the lesson? The lesson is it is impossible for the rich to be saved. That's the lesson. It is easier for the largest animal in Israel, which is a camel. It is easier, this is hyperbole, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a little needle than for a rich man who trusts in his riches to be saved. Who is a rich man? Let me tell you, a rich man is one who trusts in his money, in his beauty, in his power, in his knowledge, in his false religion, in his self-righteousness. Let me give you another test. Who is a rich man? A rich man is any person who refuses to believe in the gospel. Why is he not believing in the gospel? Which offers free salvation. Why is it? Because he's rich. We are told in the book of Revelation, the third chapter about the church of Laodicea. We are told that the church was rich. You know, during AD 60, there was a big earthquake and, and Laodicea became a disaster area and Rome offered to help rebuild the entire city. And Laodicea said, we don't need any money. We will not take any money. We are absolutely self-sufficient. And they built Laodicea back. And the historian Tatian wrote that Laodicea did not receive any penny from Rome. That's the problem of rich people. They are self-sufficient. And we are told they had need of what? Nothing. When you hear the gospel, it doesn't do anything at all to you. But to another person, it causes that person to rejoice. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I'm not saying riches and materials are a bad thing. I'm not saying that rich people cannot go to heaven. Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. But they did not trust in their riches. They trusted in God. Yes, you can be rich. At the same time, experience a sense of sin and a sense of unworthiness. A sense of being lost. And God will assist you to experience that lostness. That you will cry out to God like the publican, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Finally, the miracle of salvation. You see, Pharisee, you can never save yourself. God will not accept your definition of perfection and righteousness. Pharisee says he does not need a cross. He does not need a Christ. He does not need a cross. He is able to save himself. 
There was another problem. The problem was this, that the Jewish people believed that if you are rich, then it is due to the fact that you loved God so much, so he gave you the money. That's why the shock of the disciples, if the rich people who are so favored by God cannot enter into the heaven, then nobody can be saved. You see the shock therapy? Don't ever think that the monies that you are amassing is due to divine favor. You see the stupidity of it. But if you are a Christian and if you have money, one thing I assure you, you will not trust in your money. You will distribute it till you will do good with it. But you will trust in Jesus Christ alone. You see, rich men cannot be saved. We are told how should be saved. You must be what? Born again, born of the Spirit. We are told eternal life is a gift that God gives to you. It is like the dead Lazarus who was buried and was thinking to pretend that such a person can be justified before God is stupidity. It takes a miracle for Lazarus to come out of his tomb. But let me offer you this morning, there is one who kept all laws perfectly, always. There is one, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. He was sent into this world, became incarnate, and he kept the law perfectly. He paid the penalty of our sins. By his death, our sins have been removed and punished. And by his life of perfect law-keeping, he bestows upon us his perfect righteousness with which to meet God who is perfect and good. Jesus said to Martha, only one thing is needful. And that certainly is not money. It is the gift of the perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ to us miserable sinners. By him we are saved forever. By him we have eternal life. By him we are in the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We must leave all to become disciples of Christ. Isn't that true? We cannot trust in our mothers and fathers and our job, our money, our children, our position, our education, our profession, nothing. Leave all. The shocked disciples asked, hey, are we, what's going to happen to us? We left all. You think we will be saved? Oh, absolutely. He promises three things. You will have hundredfold houses and lands and relationships. What does that mean? It has to mean that you will be part of a newly constituted people of God. There will be reconstituted relationships that transcends all other relationships. Then he also promised sufferings in this present world. You will have suffering. And then he promised you will have eternal life in the age to come. 
There is a coming age, brothers and sisters, and it is coming soon. And I counsel you to pray to God to give you a sense of poverty. A sense of poverty, brother or sister. A sense of humility before this almighty God who is perfect, who is all righteous, is all holy. Don't you ever go around saying that you are not a sinner. That is delusion. When God's spirit works on you, you will confess have mercy upon me, a sinner. I'm lost. I counsel you, brother and sister, whoever you are, to be poor. Let me tell you how I can know that you are poor and how I can know that you are rich. It's very simple, isn't it? If you are poor, you will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will bow your knees to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Absolute deity. Very simple. But if you are rich, you will refuse to do that. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you spoke your word to us again, the gospel that tells us Life is in the sun. Lord, we pray that you grant faith to your people. That they may believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grace Valley Christian Center is committed to the unchanging truths of the Holy Scriptures. We have been proclaiming the whole counsel of God since 1974 through our weekly worship services, our website resources, and our publishing ministry. For more information about our church, to find more edifying sermons, or to order books by the Rev. P.G. Matthew, please visit our website at gracevalley.org.